Hey everyone, welcome to Gen X Stories, a podcast about how the so-called lost generation found itself. We are your hosts, Eve and Sasha. And today's topic is activism. So what what is what do you mean by activism? I mean, I think that Activism is getting involved in your community. It's standing up for what's right. It's um, being proactive about injustice. It's going to protest, all those things. Um, which which yeah. we were known for, right? I mean, when I was growing up there, you know, what's not the same as in the 60s with Woodstock and all that, but it seems like our generation was known to be, on one hand, slackers, not doing right. anything. And on the other hand, rising up and saying their p- truth and doing something about it. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, I think it's a weird dichotomy for, for us as a generation. Yeah, I think that, I think being called slackers was always very unfair <laughs> and a misnomer. I, I actually think that certainly growing up, coming of age really in the 90s and being in college in the 90s, I think we were looking back at the crazy excess of the 80s and, you know, this whole idea that more is better and greed is good and all of that. I think we were recognizing that that was hugely problematic and um, there was a tremendous amount of injustice in the world and we didn't want to just kind of go along with the status quo. I think you hit on the really good point. Status quo is not a Gen X kind of quality. And we see that in so many different things, but they also, they position this a little bit as irony obsessed. You know, there's that whole song, Ironic, by Alanis Morissette, that we're looking at the world slightly askew, that right. we're not taking it for granted, we're not believing what people are telling us. I mean, I, when I was in college, you mentioned the 90s, I had my first protest was was abortion rights. And I had this, I had the little button with- With the coat hanger? There you go. I had, I had the coat hanger button. We went on a protest. I was at University of Pennsylvania. We went down Spruce Street and that was in 1990, you know, so yeah. it was- and, and, my father didn't do that. My mother did that. My mother was an iconoclast in the sixties. And so I guess I figured it was okay to do that. I like I didn't ask. Did you did you ask anybody? Did you ask your parents if it was okay to rebel? Okay to, to protest? Hell no. But I mean my <laughs> parents were very liberal and so they were already well immersed in and educated about things like the women's rights and feminism and civil rights. And I mean I, you know, I mean going way back into probably the 70s. I remember my mother, for example, refused to buy any Nestle product because <laughs> breastfeeding uh, formula, baby formula. And there was a whole controversy about the the formula in, I believe, Africa not actually having the nutritional uh, content that it was supposed to. Or there was, let's put it this way. My mother was very much someone who would stand up for what was right. And same with my father. So I was pretty much brought up to stand up against injustice and when I saw things that weren't right. Going back to when I was probably about five years old and living in England and I had a little friend in my class named Neil who had cystic fibrosis. And, you know, he was different. He looked different. He had to go to the doctors a lot and kids kind of uh, made fun of him. And I remember just being kind of heartbroken about that and, and standing up for him. And, and that, that's followed me all through my life. 
it's funny when you talk about about being kids because I didn't even know how old I was. I was probably young tweens or something, but my parents would always we'd go to Wendy's for baked potato and salad bar. They had a big salad bar. And I was sitting there having dinner with my family and this older man dressed really shabbily was just sort of like hovering around the salad bar and picking up leftovers that got thrown out when people were using the tongs. Yeah. And I looked at him, I'm like, wait a minute, he's older. He should be all set. You know, I'm a kid. You're going to grow up. You're going to have your life ahead of you. And this is a guy, this is the first time I think I actually saw inequality that way. What happened to him? Yeah. That's what he has to do. And it really like it stuck with me forever that there needed to be somebody who stood up for somebody like that. Right. Well, it's kind of, it's not funny, but it's uh, ironic because there was recently something that happened, I believe, a story in the New York Post about a homeless person eating from the Whole Foods salad bar. And they had sort of made this big deal out of it. And a lot of people came back and were really irate and upset about their about the New York Post position, which was completely lacking in empathy. But that, but I think that's something that has followed us since we were kids. Yeah. That, and that, that kind of inequality is not okay. Yeah. I mean, I went to a very liberal college, um, University of Wisconsin in Madison. And it was so liberal that even coming from the liberal background that I came from in DC, when I got there, I was blown away by the, the quote unquote radicalism of the students. I remember like take back the night rallies where women would walk down the streets with no tops on. Oh. I remember a lot about a lot about abortion rights. I got active in NARAL and um, it really opened my eyes to a lot of what was going on that I was not so much aware of when I was living at home. My grandfather, who I only knew for like a year, I think he died when I was about two years old, was a civil rights attorney. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. My mother grew up with, with him. She grew up sort of seeing the downtrodden and seeing the underdogs. And somehow that sort of got in my head mm-hmm. that that was something that I needed to do. And, and that's why I ended up going into thinking I was going to go into law because I thought that I could make a change. And so one summer in between, I don't know if he was in high school or was in college, I worked at the ACL. You and and because that's why I guess you look at brand names and saying what what are you gonna where can you go someplace to make a change and ACLU seemed to be doing it and then I got in there and I had to struggle with the whole concept of what free speech means because they were talking Mm -hmm. about abortion rights there was actually a case in Pennsylvania that they were pushing against but then I read the history about it and heard that they were also instrumental in Mm. uh, the protest in Skokie where they let the Klan march right yes that was always very hard to come to terms with. Yeah. And that was like, that pushed my idealism to the nth, because if you're going to be a card carrying member of the ACLU, (laughs) you have to accept both sides of it. Exactly. There was a movie that I love that you and I've talked about that you never saw, which was called Pump Up the Volume. I saw Pump Up the Volume. Oh, you did. Okay. I thought (laughs) you never saw it. I just didn't remember that one piece. Yeah. The talk card. The Christian's. Yes. I didn't remember that particular thing. Yeah. But there was was something about that, that even though there was a microcosm that he was in high school and he's looking at all the people and he's saying, you know, no one's standing up for us and we're the underdogs and I'm going to say my truth. But he, you know, he disguised his voice and all that. But there was something about standing up to something and stand for something. 
Yeah. That drove me into my adulthood. But I never really knew where it came from or what it was called. But we, we know there's, they're calling it something now, right? Right. So third wave feminism. I, I believe nowadays what the younger generation, millennials um, and Gen Z are doing, or they're more involved in fourth wave feminism. But when we were coming up, Rebecca Walker wrote an article for Ms. Magazine and she coined the term third wave feminism. And it was really about uh, members of Generation X who were grounded in the civil rights advances of the second wave. And then third wave feminists were all about embracing individualism and diversity and redefine what it meant to be a feminist. Back in the early 90s, there's a a great quote from an article that I I pulled up. It says, in the early 1990s, young middle-class women took to the streets to protest the erosion of abortion and reproductive rights, gathered in coffee shops and dorm rooms to discuss their personal experiences with sexism and violence, and assembled in punk rock nightclubs and hijacked typical masculine spaces in order to stage their own creative and political actions. And that, I believe, refers to the riot girls of of the 90s, which were very kind of inspiring, but definitely not something that I felt like I was, I was not a riot girl, even though I did have the, you know, black leather jacket and pierced nose and went to see a lot of grunge bands. (laughs) But yeah. But can't that describe people who do, who are behind the Me Too movement now? It's, we're still dealing with the same issues. Well, if you remember, Eve, back during the Clarence Thomas trial and Anita Hill, and it was interesting, and I've read uh, articles and and, um, analysis of that particular trial that people didn't believe Anita Hill. It was obviously so different then because you had so few sources of information. You had several TV channels, several newspapers, and Anita Hill was really painted in this picture of someone who was maybe not as credible. It was it was really very upsetting and disconcerting. But nowadays, uh, there has just been this huge rising up and this huge wave of women coming forth. And because of the internet and because of social media and all the different numbers of, of news outlets that we have, there um, has been a lot more momentum and people taking um, accusations seriously. So it's obviously a very different time. But but is it very different? Because remember Kavanaugh. Remember the Kavanaugh hearings. Well, Dr. yeah. Silver no. was not believed. How has that impacted us trying to find equality? Because if we've lived our entire life looking at inequality, has being Gen X helped us crack that ceiling at all? Has that helped us sort of even out some of the inequality that we're seeing? Or, or are we still fighting those fights? Well, we're absolutely still fighting it. You know, obviously the 2016 election was a, an enormous wake up call. And I think really stirred us up and got us activated in ways that I don't think I could have ever imagined. I mean, my mother, God rest her soul, I can't even fathom what she would think about about Trump being president. Would Um, she have marched in the Women's March? Oh, yeah. And as I've said to you before, I I never considered myself an activist until the 2016 election when I was so horrified and disgusted by what was happening that I created a a fundraiser called Shaken and Stirred that you were involved with and you helped create the... You helped design the logo for and the website. I, I, you know, three years later or four years, almost four years later now, I I look back and I'm concerned that feeling of injustice, that feeling of we've got to take to the street has waned. 
waned. It's waned, but I think what's going to be interesting is going to be another Women's March. I hope it's big. I hope there's still a country to march yeah. in. I had, I had no idea that there was going to be another march, which is sort of speaks to the exact thing that I'm talking about, which is people have become complacent and there isn't this uprising and this outcry. It's sort of business as usual. So I do think that we need to kind of get our heads together and start to really get back into the game. Today, we have a great interview with Elisa Camahort-Page. She is one of the early advocates for social media as a communications and marketing tool. And she also co-founded the pioneering women's media company, Blog Her. And as part of that founding team, she was recognized by Fortune, by Forbes, by Fast Company, and a ton of others. So we have a lot to cover, and I'm going to kick it over to Sasha. Thanks so much, Eve. Alyssa, welcome to the show, and we're really excited to have you. So we're going to talk about Blog Her in a minute, but what I want to start out with is talking about the book that you co-wrote in 2018 called Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance, Activism, and Advocacy for All. Yeah, thanks. And thanks, Eve and Sasha, for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, The book was not the book I thought I would write. Uh, About a week before the November 2016 election, I went to the CEO of the company that had acquired BlogHer, where I had stayed and been working for, at that point, two years. And I said I thought it was time for me to transition gracefully out. I had other projects I wanted to work on. And at that time, a week before the election, when I thought I knew what the universe was going to look like, (laughs) but a week later, when the election happened, a friend of mine who we had been talking leading up into the election reached out to me the next day to see how I was doing. And she said that she had had a dream the night before, that she knew what she needed to do. She needed to write a book that helped people protect their personal democracies um, over the next four years, because it was very unpredictable what might happen. And I think she was super prescient that we, I don't think we could have predicted all the different things that would happen. So I'm like, sure, let's meet. Let's see if we're on the same page. Let's talk about it. At some point I said, you know what? We are both from the Bay Area. We are both in tech and media. We are both demographically pretty similar as well. Uh, I think we need a third person to uh, bring a different voice. And and particularly, I thought we needed uh, a younger person Mm -hmm. to make sure that we spoke to millennial concerns. and, and, And so I said, hey, do you want to join us? And the idea of this book is to say, look, we're all really, really focused on Washington, D.C., but by the time things bubble up and become a problem in Washington, D.C., they've been going, uh, if you don't like the way things are going, they've been going wrong at the local level, at the state level. It's it's not, Washington, D.C. is a symptom. Um, at this point, I think it's the cause of some things as well, but at that point, I, I definitely felt that it was a symptom. And I felt that it's not all happening in government and politics. So there are ways that you can activate and be a change maker in your company, in your kids' schools, in your local community, money, in the way you show up in the world. And I, we wanted to give people a broader sense of how to figure out what you cared about and go make a difference and not have it have to look like, I think a lot of people were really focused on it looking like. So let's give people a handbook for, for exploring all the different things they care about and having a bunch of resources to look into and then being able to pick, you know, here's how I want to make a difference 
different. If democracy survives, it'll be a healthier democracy. <laughs> if democracy <Right>. survives. <laughs> so you mentioned that you had always been an activist. And as a Generation X woman, what were your first memories of being an activist? Where did that start? Oh, I remember very clearly the first political speech I ever gave. So we did a, the students organized a rally at our high school in our auditorium against Prop 13. And I gave a speech. I don't remember the speech except for that I was against it. And it was, and it was my first of many experiences not seeing what I wanted to happen at the ballot box happen because Prop 13 passed and it did have almost an immediate negative effect. So that was my first public speech. My first um, March on Washington was in 1990, I did a march for animal rights on okay. Washington by myself. I just went, uh, we were, I was moving back from New York, back to California. And I took a pit stop. My, I sent my then boyfriend ahead with our two cats and I took a stop in DC, went on this march. If, if something ties it all together, it's that I've always had way too many things that I'm sort of activated by and, and feel passionately about. And it, it is, uh, that, that just goes on. Like I'm always, there's like a million things I wish I could be a great activist for. And it's one of the main piece of, pieces of advice I give people when I speak about the book is that I'm upset about 25 different things every day at minimum. Like yeah. there are 25 different things that are not going the way I want, but either on 25 issues, I can't even learn deeply enough about 25 different issues. So I have everyone, you know, you got to pick, you got to triage is what I call it. Yeah. Triage your issues, pick a couple, two or three that you're going to lead on, know about, really be able to speak intelligently to. And then for the other ones you care about, find your resources, find the people who are leading that you can support and refer people to. And that's how across a collective, we change society and culture across all those issues that we care about. So what are maybe your top three right now? Well, I cheat a little and I say, <laughs> I say um, justice because active justice is economic justice, is education justice, is healthcare justice, is environmental justice. Like the fact how policies, regulations, and corporate behavior, everything works across all these things to, to benefit a few and harm the many, to me is the, the biggest holistic issue of really the world, not just our country, but the world. So I, I cheat a little and I say justice issues. And it's why I don't want to hear just about economic inequality if you don't talk about the, uh, all the bigotry that feeds right into that economic inequality. So I want to pivot a little bit back to yeah. back to Gen X um, and, and being a woman and being a woman activist. Do you think that there was an, anything that happened back in the 80s and 90s during that time period in your life and just in general in terms of being Gen X? Do you think it shaped who we are? Absolutely. From my perspective, we grew up, it, we came of age with Thatcher and Reagan. And, and I think a lot of us saw with our feet on the street the human impact of some of those lofty ideals. So if we came of age seeing this, everyone buying into sort of globally this trickonic economics where it wasn't flowing to the, the most needy and most uh, marginalized amongst us. Mm -hmm. and, the, and then the huge disparity. I think that's probably why Gen X is really so triggered by the income inequality topic is that the, the, the 80s were the greed is good decade as well. So you had dynasty and you had a bunch of people with no, no place to go during the 
day sleeping on my college campus, you know? So you can really look to, there's always been disparity, but that was so glaring in the way Mm. the dynasty style and greed is good. You know, that was real life for for a bunch of people. And then I moved to New York in the late eighties and And that was was not easy, right? (laughs) That was not a pretty time. And then you have like the, the racial, I think the late eighties was when people might've had in the seventies into the early eighties, a feeling like, okay, well, we solved racism, you know, the the idea that we saw, the idea that we solved racism didn't start with electing Barack Obama. It started with, okay, the Civil Rights Act is in the Voting Rights Act. That's all been passed. Um, You know, now we're in the 70s. It's the, you know, we have a lot of these um, high ideals and we're going to fix all that. Well, the late (laughs) 80s in New York was like every racial tension brought to life in numerous nationwide cases. I lived there during Bernard Getz, during the Central Park exonerated mm-hmm. five, all these things all happened with a four, within a four or five year period. And you're like, <laughs> we have not solved this problem. And um, so I think that we were sort of forged in this cauldron of inequality and realizing how much further we had to go. So the 80s was all about sort of putting this nice shiny gloss over everything. And then when we came of age in the 90s and or late 80s and 90s and saw what was actually reality, it was really kind of mind-blowing. Yes, there um, was a huge cognitive dissonance. Obviously, you started BlogHer. You created this incredible movement and community in 2005, which to some of the people that we all know, it's like before they were born. <laughs> oh, don't say that. Oh my God, don't say that. <laughs> um, but anyways, early days of, of blogging and, and all of that, was there an activist component to BlogHer? How did that sort of all come together? Yeah, BlogHer started with a mission and was to create opportunities for these women who were creating content online. But the mission was a little deeper because behind the mission was the fact that my two co-founders and I saw this supposedly democratized new form of media where everybody had access. And as the main mainstream media started to pay attention to it in 2004 and 2005, all their sources, all the links, everyone they cited was basically a white dude. And we thought it would be a crime if we have this democratized form of media and it just the default was to recreate the old boys network of traditional media. And the idea was to say, you know, we're here. If you need some sources, if you need to know what's happening, if you need to know has their finger on the pulse, ask some women. I really thought the internet was going to break down barriers and help create a better world. And in those early days of the social web, Web 2.0, you're looking at companies like uh, Blogger, Blogger 2Gs that got acquired by Google, Six Apart, Flickr, Blog her, all formed by a blogger. Blog her was, we were all women, but the other companies I mentioned were all formed by a man and a woman. And they were community-based and they were about this democratized media. And I think there was a distinctly different opportunity that you could see and a vision you could have looking at those companies than the companies that came at around the same time we did and later, meaning YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. And those companies were founded by men exclusively men. And I think that having a more diverse perspective brings more awareness of the unintended consequences that might come from your policymaking, of the experience that prominent women have had in media dating back to newspapers and television. That happened online too. So at the beginning, we were just saying, don't recreate a boys network here. Um, Live a little, talk to some women. So you interviewed a lot of really amazing people. I watched a couple of your old YouTube videos and I have to ask, who was your favorite interviewee? Oh, wow. 
Wow, that's hard. I interviewed Sarah Michelle Geller at our Blogger Annual Conference in 16. And although I held it together and acted super cool, I'm, I am a massive Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. In fact, the book I was going to write before um, the one I ended up writing, the idea I had was Buffy Life Lessons. Like everything I need to know about leadership, I learned from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But it was, it was great fun. And we talked about her business and we talked about Buffy and we talked about all sorts of things. And that was probably my most fun interview I did. So who inspires you these days from an activism standpoint or just in general? Oh, that's a great question. So many people. Um, there's, there's some women, you know, Maxine Waters, Gloria Steinem, uh, Nancy Pelosi. These are powerful, powerful women in, in different ways. But then there's Greta. Thunberg, I was going to say Greta. You, know, you got to have Greta. So, got to have Greta. <laughs> So, and I feel, and John Lewis is one of my heroes. Dolores Huerta is one of my heroes. So 2020, what are you most looking forward to in 2020? From a political point of view, I think 2020, I think we're going to be pleased. I think that 2018, you know, was an even bigger blue wave than people give uh, it credit for. And I think that will continue. And, and then I think we're going to have a lot of hard work ahead of us because things have changed governmentally and things have changed culturally in these last few years. I think that there'll be a lot of work to do. So how do you how do you stay sane just from a personal standpoint? Do you have any practices? Do you have any quote unquote self-care or other practices that keep you focused and keep you engaged? My little mantra that I put in my email signature is that innovation plus empathy is greater than innovation plus efficiency. And I really believe that technology and business and your professional persona can align with empathy, align with your personal values. If your values aren't aligned, they're not aligned in more than just politics. So focus on delighting and inspiring and galvanizing the people who you are on the same plane with, the same vibe. Uh, and I think it, um, will make, it will probably make us all a lot more pleasant to be around. We hope you enjoyed today's topic as much as we did. And thanks to Lisa Camelhort page for talking to us today. We'll have all of our information in the show notes, including a link to her website, book, and social media channels. And of course, we'll have resources to help you keep fighting the good fight. Subscribe to Gen X Stories on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Gen X Stories, or just email us at hello at genxstories.com. Everyone has a Gen X story. What's yours?